Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly discussion that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. That's D-H-A-R-M-A media.com. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's edition of Conversations. Z, we're having a discussion about culture. And this whole thing came up because you're reading this book called The Triple Package. And I looked into this. Uh, the Triple Package is about why certain groups are successful and other ones aren't. And the idea is that a lot of it has to do with culture. So the idea is that we are taught uh, the ways that we carry ourselves. That leads certain groups into a path of success and others not so much. It was written, uh, one of the authors was Amy Chua, who gained some notoriety because she was the Asian tiger mom, which I thought was an interesting aside. And I was taking a look at this and some of the traits that are mentioned in this book, I think they actually boil it down to three traits, which are seemingly contradictory, but not really. Uh, One is a sense of superiority. So you just believe that you're better than everyone else. The other is a deep sense of insecurity. Uh, which is a little bit at odds with the superiority, but you're also insecure about yourself, which drives you to do better. And then there was one more, which I can't remember. And if you remember what it is, you can chime in. But I was just reading this description, and I thought it was really interesting because when I used to work at this consulting firm, I found the same thing. It was so funny. We would see all of these contradictory traits at work, and it never made that much sense to me because I would see people who were just real dicks. You know, there were these partners, and they were just arrogant as hell. But you could also tell that they were insecure. I mean, they were looking for other people to tell them they were good. And I always found that so weird. So it wasn't until today, Z, when I read this description that it kind of made sense to me. And I'm like, okay, I can understand this. And maybe it is a certain cultural training that transcends that consulting firm. And it's more of a general recipe for monetary success, which doesn't necessarily mean success in all dimensions, But if you think about corporate success, monetary success, maybe that is part of the package, part of the recipe. So as we get into this, it's interesting because we can start with these three conditions for success, and we see this in different cultural groups. And if we think a little more broadly about this, there are so many facets of ourselves, our ideas about life, our ideas about relationships, about what we value, uh, what we care about, how we conduct ourselves, that really have to do with culture. So it's nothing more than that. And in fact, I put out a video recently, which was something along the lines of the truth will set you free and how 10 years ago, I learned that everything I knew was a lie. (laughs) And you think about what that feels like. It's like your entire reality is slipping away. And I didn't really mean that everything was literally a lie. But what I meant by that was we absorb so many things and so many ways of thinking that we're not conscious of, we just pick it up because of our surroundings, because of how we see other people behave, because what we're taught about right and wrong. And that's fine. Uh, those things have a certain place, perhaps in, in particular objectives, particular moments in time, but they shape who we are. And if we don't think carefully about them, our entire identity, our personality our interaction with other people and with the world is shaped by forces that are outside of our control. And maybe they work for us and maybe they don't. I mean, it depends on, number one, what we value. So, for example, if we want material success, then, yeah, maybe we go around feeling like we're superior and maybe we're also always looking for validation. And if that's our only priority, then great. 
but we also have to recognize that there is a downside to that type of behavior. So each one of these traits has some benefit, but it also has some liability. And by understanding these different aspects of a culture, we are free to mold our own beliefs. So we can actually step away from ourselves, which is what I started doing 10 years ago when I just wasn't that happy with how I was living and what I was achieving. And I started to think about what really drove me. What did I believe? What were the reasons why I behaved the way that I did? And that started to reshape my thinking and got me to a healthier place. But it's interesting, Z, because it took me until my 30s. I mean, it was more than three decades on this planet of just absorbing culture, absorbing ideas that were given to me, mimicking other behaviors without deep consideration. And maybe there was some residual discomfort. Certain things I thought were a little bit fucked up. Uh, so, for example, we talked about relationships and how a lot of times in at least a portion of the Asian society, people get together because of attributes on paper. So in Indian culture, for instance, you have something called biodata. And you go to a matchmaker and you put down a bunch of traits that you have and you put down a bunch of traits that you want your partner to have. And it's things like the family and what their jobs are. It's uh, things like how much money you have, what your education is. But a lot of times it has nothing to do with how you look. And there's almost a stigma around that. Like you shouldn't be asking that. That's too base of a question. Don't worry about how someone looks. How can you be so, so uncultured, so unrefined, uh, so, so crass? But that's a fundamental part of who we are. And so that's something, for example, that I rejected because it just never made that much sense to me. But it did cause some residual discomfort. Uh, but there are also other aspects of my culture, which I didn't start questioning until later on. And you bring up uh, these traits uh, in this book, uh, The Triple Package, that maybe lead people to success in certain dimensions, but it can also lead to failure. Because if you're driven by insecurity and you're driven by also a sense of superiority, that messes up your relationships with other people. I mean, just saying that out loud, Z, it makes you sound like a psychopath. It's like, who's going to want to deal with you if you're this arrogant asshole, but also you want someone else to tell you how great you are? It's not conducive to relationships. It's also not good to be insecure because it destroys your sense of self and it can drive you to extremes. So you have people, and I know plenty of examples of people who are very successful on paper, but in life they're completely dysfunctional. And you hear more and more about suicides because people are depressed and they're burnt out. So there's a liability to these traits. If you look at some of the other cultures that we've been talking about, the African-American culture, sometimes there's a stigma. And from what I've heard talking to friends, Sometimes people don't want to appear smart because it's not cool to be smart. It's not cool to go to school. And you think about the impact that has on someone's life. I mean, it just sets them back. Even if you're the type who likes learning, you don't want to put yourself in that situation because everyone else around you is going to beat you down on the playground. Uh, so that's a limiting aspect of a particular culture. And we could go around the world and go through a lot of different characteristics of cultures. And again, these aren't right or wrong. I think all of these come up for particular reasons, but we have to understand whether those reasons align with our own beliefs about what's valuable and also whether they've outlived their utility. So another aspect of my culture, I mean, I look at my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, they had to keep their head down, especially my grandparents. Uh, they lived under British rule. So there was a lot of pressure to not rock the boat, to go with the flow to just do your job, uh, to cultivate relationships with the groups that are in power. 
And maybe nothing wrong with that at that point in time, but you fast forward 50 years or 70 years, it's a different world. And so you have to update your beliefs. But if you're not consciously taking control of these beliefs and examining those aspects of your culture, which ultimately create the aspects of yourself, then you're stuck in a time warp. And maybe you've got a strategy which worked at one point in time, but doesn't make any sense today. So these are the sorts of things that we've been covering, Z. Uh, I think this is a hugely important topic. It really reflects the essence of who we are. It reflects our standards. Uh, it reflects our life strategy. And so it's important to be aware of these cultural imprints and not just to take them at face value, uh, be able to examine them, uh, keep them, discard them, modify them as we see fit. And we can mold ourselves into whoever we want to be, uh, into a person uh, that really maybe resonates better with with our core essence. I don't know how else to put it. Maybe our temperament is the right word, but we need a set of rules for life that match that temperament and match our circumstances. And it starts with an awareness of what we're picking up with our culture. So just some thoughts to kick us off, but I'll hand it over to you, Z. Uh, why don't you share your thoughts on the topic? Yeah, Vin, I was really inspired reading this book, and I suggest that all the opt-outs out there and everybody that follows us Go on and download the audiobook triple package. I, I don't get any money from these people telling you to order the book, uh, but it, it is one of those things that I believe will help us with our general health and wellness. I've sent it out to a number of people I thought could benefit from it. And it reduces a lot of the noise about the condition of the world and the people we interact with and ourselves. I, w I love where words come from. If you think about culture and you hear a doctor is putting a sample in a Petri dish and allowing it to culture, allowing those bacteria to grow amongst themselves and create a cultural biome, and you get a sense of what that thing can do. So your culture gives you a sense of what you can do. That doesn't mean that that culture is perfect. It's the best culture. And I think that's where uh, the limits of human arrogance and, and, and being unenlightened will take you and you start to feel you're better or worse than somebody. And as a, as a species on this earth, human beings will probably be defined about how long they lasted. So if you want to see cultures that do well or don't do well, you see how long do they last? When, when are their rises and falls of this culture? How did they go to uh, reach a level of greatness and then what caused them to die off? Just like if you were looking at bacteria culture growing in a petri dish. When did it start to die off or did it grow so much that it overwhelmed the petri dish and keep moving? And so with our, our individual macro cultures and then the micro cultures within them, being able to just look and say, what made me, what petri dish did I grow in? So in this book, they talk about uh, these ideas of what makes people able to do well. They looked at different cultures, Jewish culture, uh, Asian culture, Nigerians, uh, a certain immigrant cultures, uh, uh, Persians, and so forth. How do they come from very difficult situations and then do well financially in this country? How do they do well materially in this country? Because take away all the coloring of empty patriotism, People come to America not for freedom, but for property rights, to be able to hold on to the money you got. That's what it's all about. They come here so they can hold on to the money they created. So maybe wherever they were, were at one time, the taxation system, the instability of government made it 
almost impossible for you to maintain and grow your own resources and assets without maybe it coming into some kind of collective taking of your money to give it away to other people and work hard for it. So people come here for that. They don't come here for red, white, and blue. They don't come here for 4th of July. They come here so they can set up businesses, do whatever, make money, bottom line. So let's get that false narrative out of the way and talk about cultures on both ends, what cultures do well and what doesn't. I was thinking about it because it made me reflect upon myself on the times that I've done well financially and the times that I've struggled financially. What is it in my cultural makeup, micro and macro, that puts me in those positions? I look at uh, my wife's culture, uh, South Asian culture, everybody in their family is pretty, uh, doing pretty well financially. And what made that happen? Well, how do they think? How do they look at things? So they talk about one of the third things that you missed out was talk about delayed gratification. And delaying gratification has a very far-reaching implication beyond what we would immediately think, oh, I won't buy that, I'll save for next week. People actually give up intimate gratification. So as you said, if you watch, what is it, Indian matchmaker, nobody is checking to see if that person is intimately inspiring to them. And because I have been a man of the world, as you know, I've been the lover of many women, and I've been around the world, and one of the easiest things for me to do was enter cultures where they suppressed or didn't value human intimacy. So when you come there and you're uh, attracted to someone on an individual level, you find them interesting, you are aroused by them, you want to please them, you want to connect with them, people go crazy. They've never experienced somebody who gave a damn on an individual level how they felt, how to please them, how to uplift them, because most of their conditioning was about group synthesis, how to keep the group structured, how to keep the group strong, what's the best fit for our group, as opposed to what curls my toes, right? So you made example yourself, Ben, where you, you, you broke out of that and you went after somebody that really liked you, found you attractive, uh, your wife thought uh, you kind of looked like me or something, and she hooked up with you, and um, you saw her and you found her very beautiful and attractive, and you guys have a lot of heat in your relationship in addition to having a successful family. Um, so you broke from that, as were many people stuck to what's best for the group. And so all that's off the table. Uh, sensual arousal, pleasure, or all that, that doesn't count. What counts is that we're doing what's good to make our group flourish. So the upside of the culture is that the group does well. The downside of the culture, you have a lot of people and you can just walk down the street and see they are, they are empty of anything that resembles attraction or passion, right? But it's a trade-off. And now when you're aware of that, you can adjust that. And that's what I'm saying. So those cultures aren't inherently bad. Or another culture, for example, people who don't have this idea of delayed gratification or they have high passion relationship, they usually have a lot of different partners. They have a lot of ups and downs, a lot of divorce and reconnecting. Uh, they have a lot of body count on their partnering because everybody's looking for the next passionate interaction or the next hot love affair. And they're going from person to person. There's unwed um, uh, children born out of wedlock. 
there's all these problems that go along with the pursuit of, of passion and sensuality in certain cultures. And so if you can adjust the, uh, the degree of passion or delayed gratification, then those cultures would flourish better. You'd see fewer and fewer children born out of wedlock with all the problems that come with that. So as I said, what's inspiring about doing that is what it allows you to look at yourself. It gives you another tool to look at your own self as you're going through things. We look at the culture of health and wellness. There are certain cultures, both again, macro and micro, that value fitness, right? Fitness is actually a valued commodity. In those cultures, people have, are involved in walking, social activity, they're involved in, in, in collective communal dances. Um, they, they enjoy sports. Um, they enjoy uh, regular outdoor trips with their family. So they're physically active cultures. There are other cultures that are more urban and they don't do anything. And their culture is usually around movie, television, sitting, things like that. And there is a, uh, a liability to health in those cultures. In the other culture, there's a benefit to their health. So what I like to look at is the liability and benefits of things in your culture. So when you get into the, the, the microculture of your house where you live under your own roof, you can make adjustments. As I read the book, of course, I want my children to be able to flourish financially. I think Vin and I, we're trying to get our kids to lean towards one another. Um, they, the, your daughter has met my son. In an ideal world, we would arrange a marriage with them, not because we don't want them to have a bubbling love affair, but we're worried. I, I, I know uh, Drone is probably going to go to MIT or somewhere like that. He's already reading at an eighth grade level because education is a big thing in our culture. Um, he uh, also is learning uh, things that I didn't learn, that my sisters learned. He's, I, want, I want you to teach him about the stock market. He saved about $500 of his money and he wants to buy something. I said, you can only spend one-fourth or one-fifth of your money on things you enjoy. So he says, if, if I do this right, but by next week or in two weeks, I can buy the next Technic Lego I want. And I said, okay, when you buy that, what will you want after that? He said, well, I'll wait longer for the next thing I want. So I'm teaching him the value of delayed gratification, though what he gets, he really enjoys. So I'm learning from that on how to do things better than what was on me. In my culture, the women were taught financial management and long-term financial thinking, and the men were taught honor, uh, warrior craft, um, the art of being a soldier, the code of Budo, to sacrifice for the greater good of others you will never see because you won't live that long. So that, that doesn't necessarily fit well with long-term life financial management. Right, So we'll make a lot and give away everything uh, to serve some higher purpose or give to a noble cause with no regard for self. So to make small adjustments in that where you can jump on the grenade, but you don't have to jump stomach first, maybe you just jump with your arm on the grenade and you get the benefit of that. You might lose an arm, but you don't lose your body. So I'm learning, and, and, and I, that's why I suggest to everybody, read this. Learn what it is when you talk about delayed gratification? What, what things can you adjust in your life so that things go better for you, though you may have to um, turn the volume down on certain things? Um, this idea of self-esteem. They're saying that 
people with high self-esteem do not do well in life in terms of uh, financial. I said, wow, that, I, I didn't know that. I thought everybody should have high self-esteem. No, if you over-esteem yourself, you destine yourself for mediocrity because you're walking around thinking you're great and you didn't do anything. When you have low self-esteem, you tend to strive, work towards high self-esteem. And you continue to do that because you never reach that point. Someone told a joke about a Jewish woman being nominated for president and her mother was watching the audience and said to someone in the audience, see that girl up there on the podium? Her brother's a doctor, right? So just that little bit of, of telling you you're not so great tends to make a person strive. And when you see in certain communities where they talk about how great they are, I'm wonderful, I'm wonderful, everything is great, I'm wonderful, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I'm great, and they're not, right? You have these groups of people that are un, just totally unhealthy, and everybody's saying it's okay, we're going to rename unhealthiness. We're going to call it body positive. We're going to call it, uh, what is it, big, bold, and beautiful, or something like that, when actually you're a candidate for uh, uh, the dialysis machine. You're not going to live long. You're not healthy at all. But people say they're proud, loud, and big, right? That's a big thing. I'm loud. I'm big. Uh, I'm going to drape myself with a theater curtain and wear it as a formal garment. And I'm just wonderful in my hover round. And that's one of the worst things American culture bestows upon people is an over-esteeming of mediocrity. And we want to, you can see that that's an ingredient for failure in all communities. And it's devastating to the black community in America. You have a sense of fairness. Most people who do really well had no sense of fairness. So here in America, people are talking about leveling the playing field, making everything fair, treating everybody the same, giving everybody uh, an equal start. Well, that actually promotes failure because people, you, you walk around mad feeling that there was a debt owed to you that is unresolved. And because you didn't get your, that debt resolved, something is owed to you, you're walking around uh, with your pockets turned out, broke, um, and not striving, sitting, waiting for justice that will never come. But if you never had the sense that there was justice and you understood that the nature of things is unfairness, the nature is not fair and equal, it is not fair and balanced, you work hard and you do, you do what you have to do in spite of the obstacles in front of you. You do the workaround. You find another way around things. You say, yeah, racism is a big problem. One of the right-wing firebrands, uh, Ann Coulter, the other day, went off on a group of people and saying the only people that can really have a gripe in America about racism are black people. And this is a, a right, far-right, uh, borderline neo-Nazi type person that admits, yeah, America has created a lot of things that are very uh, racist. Uh, in India, you have a lot of shadism. Dravidian versus Aryan, um, dark and lovely, people buy dark and lovely by the boatloads, wanting to whiten themselves, not knowing that they're no longer colonized. And so you have problems, you have caste system. In China, you have class issues that can be devastating for a native Chinese person or a native uh, Taiwanese or whatever. You have major class shame issues that people have to overcome. Everybody has their cross to bear, but the, your culture will determine how you throw that cross off or how you bear that cross. And that's one of the beauties of this book. It ends many arguments that we have. Um, recently, they ended affirmative action 
um, under the guise that black people were getting benefits because they were black, which of course is completely not true. Um, it, 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 it was more of a political, part of the political class war. But I think about all the people that died getting affirmative action. No one died eliminating affirmative action. No one lost sleep or lost property or body getting rid of it. So that's part of the culture. But what I would say is don't waste time complaining. Don't waste time redressing it. Focus all that energy on, example, historically black universities. Go there. Uh, don't shop with people, uh, for example, that don't like you. America at one point uh, did not allow Asians to have businesses in white areas. Wouldn't give them loans, wouldn't give them permits but they could open up in black areas. So those people would open their businesses in black areas and then have great disdain because the racial pecking order in America was success was whiteness, uh, failure was blackness. So every immigrant, even black immigrants coming to the United States don't want to deal with black Americans. And then they had laws that amplified that um, animus <clears throat> and angst and so forth. So, but at those times in histories, um, black people actually did better. And black people that made their own businesses often were burned down or destroyed by the city. But when black people did commerce amongst black people, black people were in better situation financially, globally. Black people in America now are in an extinction phase. They're now below 11% of the population, when at one time they were 20% of the po US population. And because of the culture, which is a very American culture, it's not a, a, a African-American, it's, it's, it's American culture, of entitlement, of a sense of fair play, of a sense of all these things that actually create failure. And black people being the canary in the cage of humanity, they are dying off in America because of a failed culture. You'll see other groups aspiring. Uh, black people were the majority minority. Now I believe it is Mexicans or people who are, are, are what they call Hispanic, which is a really weird term. It means people who speak Spanish. It isn't because you can be a black Hispanic, you can be an Asian Hispanic. It's a really weird word. Um, but those people are now the majority minority. Um, Asians now have, uh, it, are, are a larger portion of the population than the former slaves. And black people from the Caribbean and African are do, do much better than black people from America. Why is that? Because of the culture. Black people in America have a hillbilly culture. And if you sit back and just study it, don't get mad at the messenger, and you can see. So the remedy of that is looking within a culture, making adjustments for success, um, delayed gratification, stop saying you're great when you're not, strive for greatness even when you achieve it, keep striving. Um, those are lessons when it comes to your health and well-being. Don't look for things that justify your unhealthiness. Look for things that tell you why you're not healthy. Why is everybody in my family diabetic? Why is everybody in my body have hypertension? Why do people after 50 in my family succumb to cognitive decline? And look at the cultures within your family make changes. Where everybody drinks, everybody does this. I'm not gonna do that. I like the family get together. I like seeing Aunt Sally and Uncle Bob, but I'm not gonna eat or drink the way they do. I'm not gonna smoke like them. I'm not gonna participate in their behavior. That doesn't mean you don't like your culture, but you can create another Petri dish to grow your future in. And that's what I got out of that book. 
I think about a lot of uh, my Asian family suffer from depression. A lot of them have passionless relationships that no one admires. You see people walking down, you see these couples, they look like brother and sister, um, and there's no passion, there's no energy. They don't even know what that means or what that looks like. That affects your health in a negative way. Human beings are primal animals, and we thrive because we have lust and desire for one another, and we want to live, and we want our kids to be strong, not just financially well off and being able to live in a cul-de-sac or live amongst a community and go to one boring, sad wedding after another. We want them to strive and fly and aspire and see things we never saw. So those are areas of the culture. Maybe you can break from those uh, matchmaker type things and find people either within or outside of your cultural fences that really you really like. Um, they call it out marrying or whatever. whatever. I'm not sure what the term is, Vin, when you marry Becky, whatever it's called. I just think that you and, for example, you and Becky fit together. I, I, Becky could easily be my daughter. The way she talks, her and I get along. I see why you guys are together. I think if you would have went to a matchmaker, you would have never met Becky. You would have never experienced that. You would have probably already committed suicide because, and you would never be doing lying with the mic. Um, or committed her to an asylum. Right, right, right. Or have to commit her to an asylum. So you follow that primordial drive and your kids are beautiful and sound. Beautiful, crazy, nutty kids that uh, are, are, are going to give you a hell of a ride through this life. And they're beautiful. So too are my children. And um, those are things we want to think about. Again, we live in a world where people are constantly looking to be offended. They're constantly looking to be triggered. We're constantly looking for the mediocre of the mediocre. I don't care about them. I don't listen to them. I don't entertain their conversation. The world is much simpler. Nature has designed a very clear world to look at. They've given us the instrument of physics to look and study natural phenomena. We know what's what. Don't believe the hype. A lot of the stuff you see is nonsense. Don't put energy into that. Let's talk about real things we can do to uplift ourselves, to make corrections where we need to make corrections. And you will find that it, it's inspiring. I am inspired by that reading. It's given me a new insight in myself, and I can also see different strategies I'm creating to create abundance within my community and my family. My idea of wealth and abundance has always meant that everybody around me does well. I always think that way. You make a little adjustment, maybe I have to get wealthy first, and then I can bring everybody with me. So I'm going to look at the different cultural um, ideas that I've been uh, ingrained in the petri dish that I live in and maybe spill over, make a new petri dish with those modifications. I'll do my own, uh, my own genetic modifying of, um, of my culture so that I can flourish into my elder years and also leave something for my kids. With you and I working on the, the DPO um, and also the Dharma Media Project, uh, it's helping me understand the importance of adapting to the culture of the day. I was just talking to Caitlin. I have to do more where they call it a posting and all this kind of stuff um, because I get nothing out of that. But that, again, delayed gratification. Maybe I shouldn't get anything out of it. Maybe it should be passionless and just create and produce like an arranged marriage. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, no, I got you. I agree with that 100%. I, 
I know you get nothing out of it. I mean, social media is a different conversation. It's been on my mind too. So I won't spend too much time on this because it's going to sidetrack us. Uh, but yeah, it's it's like a horrible world to be in. And it just takes your attention and it gives you nothing in exchange. But to your point, maybe it's not nothing. Uh, maybe we are eventually finding that community of people in the ethersphere. And the key is to be consistent and, and not really worry about where this takes us and are we getting some immediate benefit. So I think that is a nice tie into that third principle that you talked about, which I forgot about at the beginning, the delayed gratification. And in fact, as I remember some of the research that I've seen, that's one of the best predictors of success in children. I don't know if they bring this up in the book, but there are experiments that are done uh, where you look at kids and you look at impulse control. Uh, so you'll put candy in front of them and you'll tell them, okay, you can either have all the candy now or you can hold on to some of the candy and you can get even more candy later. And the ones that have that ability to delay and get more candy later, if you track them through life, they actually end up doing better. So that might be one of the things that the triple package uh, brought up. So I think all of this is interesting as uh, we've been talking about these different factors that form our reality. It forms, I would put it as life strategy. I've used that a couple of times, but I think that's the best term to encapsulate the impact of culture. It teaches us what to value, how to interact with other people, how to go about getting what we want, how to survive. I mean, so much of culture is just about how to survive, what strategies have worked at particular points in time, and that impacts how we behave today. Uh, so you brought up the marriage. At certain points in time, maybe you need that stability. Maybe you need to do what's best for the community, so you improve communal ties, and suddenly you're not going to war with your neighbor uh, because your kids are married. Uh, so uh, that's a benefit. Uh, we talked about keeping your head down, and at certain points, that is a survival strategy. Uh, but we need to be able to look at these strategies and adapt. And one point I think you touched on, Z, which I thought was interesting, is to take a look at other cultures. I feel like the hardest thing to do, the reason it becomes so hard to adapt and to change, is that we don't know what we don't know. So if you only know one thing and you've only seen one way of being, it's hard to conceive any other reality. That becomes your entire reality. You almost don't know that you have a choice. And we talk about this with regard to aging and how you've got people at Dharma Health Institute who are in their 80s, who are in better shape than they were 20 years ago, who are also in better shape than a lot of 40 and 50-year-olds that you encounter. But they have a completely different narrative around aging. So they've rejected this idea, which is a cultural idea that I've just got to disappear. I'm going to hit a certain point and my health is going to decline and I'm going to be on a lot of medication. I won't be able to get around. I'll see myself as physically shrinking. And of course, that sends a signal uh, to the brain, to the self. And you're basically telling yourself that you're not that useful anymore. So that goes back and actually impacts you in a physical way. And everyone around you is doing the same thing. And you get together and you complain about hip problems and high blood pressure and talk about the different medications that you're taking. And if that's all you know, and that's all your family has gone through, then you think that that's it. You see people around you dying of cancer or dying of heart disease, and you assume it's genetic because everyone you know has that condition. But you don't understand that potentially the reason everyone's got that condition is because they've all got the same lifestyle and they've all got the same beliefs, uh, not that they've all got the same genes. And 
I think that maybe is the biggest advantage of being able to go out and source ideas from other places and just be an observer. Just go and observe how other people operate because so much of what we believe around life isn't absolute. It's contextual. I mean, I saw this Z. I was reading an article the other day, which was very interesting. It was around archaeology and how research has been done across civilizations that challenges a lot of our conventional assumptions. So if you look at how we've organized our societies and you look at this idea of free markets and capitalism, a lot of it is based on this philosophical idea that people always act in their self-interest and that people are mean and they're brutish. I think it was Thomas Hobbes who said this, that life is nasty and short and brutish. And at heart, uh, we've just got an animal nature. So we need to corral that animal nature. We need to give people some monetary incentive for doing something. And that supports this whole idea of free markets. Uh, And that is such a deeply ingrained idea. I mean, it impacts not only our economy, it impacts how we interact with other countries, how we see the world. We see enemies all over the place because we assume that people are just looking for an opportunity to take us out. And maybe that's true, again, at certain points in time. But the research that was done basically showed that that's not unconditional. You know, that's not true in all cases. That's true in certain circumstances. There are other examples of how you can organize your society, how you can interact with one another that are completely different. And it's because people have a different set of ideas about life. Or it's perhaps because times were different, circumstances were different. But you think about that idea about people reverting to their animal nature and that we live in this animal kingdom and everyone's out for themselves. That shapes people's reality. It's something we don't even bother to question. And it goes beyond that. It's not only do we not bother to question it, it shapes history. So it shapes our analysis of what's happened in the past. We're viewing it through that lens. So we're not even being objective. You know, even if we see conflicting evidence, those cultural ideas are so strong that it blinds us and it forces us to go down a path. Maybe it's a good path, maybe it's a bad path, but it is a single path and it prevents us from evolving and from adapting and trying things that are new. Uh, This conversation, Z, it also reminds me of this experiment that was done with a bunch of monkeys, which I don't know if it's true or it's this apocryphal story, but I think it's kind of a cool story where you've got a bunch of monkeys and you put them in a cage And then you've got food at the top. And as soon as one monkey climbs up to the top to get the food, uh, the entire cage, there's an electric shot that goes through it. So all of the monkeys are electrocuted. And so after a while, none of the monkeys go up to get the food. And then what you do is you take out one of the monkeys and you put in a new monkey. And that monkey doesn't know about this. So they go up to get the food. And the rest of the monkeys are like, we can't let this motherfucker electrocute us. So they go and grab him and beat him down. So they keep him in line. And that's fine. That makes sense. But then you keep on taking out monkeys and you go through this process. And eventually, all of the monkeys that are in the cage have never been electrocuted. They've never been electrocuted. They never experienced that. But still, if there's a new monkey who comes into the cage, who goes and tries to get food, they will beat that monkey down because that's all they know. (laughs) And that is their culture. As soon as you start climbing up that wall, we're going to chase you and we are going to beat you down. And the nice thing about being human is that we're able to step away from ourselves. We're able to be that dispassionate observer and we can observe reality and we can overcome some of this programming, but it takes effort. I mean, it takes consciousness. You know, it takes that Buddha consciousness that we've talked about. It takes discrimination. That's what I've talked to about my kids. And I spend a lot of time speaking to them 
we have to be able to discern what is real, what's not real, what is an actual problem, what is just an emotional response. Otherwise, we're prisoners. You know, we're just stuck in these endless patterns, these endless cycles that don't necessarily serve us. So to me, Z, that's one of the big issues that we have, just being able to see other points of view to expand our idea of what is possible and what is real. And the other challenge that we face is even if we can do that and we want to walk down a different path, then suddenly we're outliers. So we're pariahs. I mean, we're social animals. We're part of a culture, a community, a family. We start doing things differently and suddenly we don't quite fit in. And people look at us a little bit askance and they're like, yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about that Z guy or about Vin. I don't know what the deal is with the spoken word. Why can't he just be happy at home? Why, why does he have to go and uh, start Dharma media? What the hell is that? And it affects our relationships. Uh, you know, it affects our energy. Uh, it, it makes it almost very difficult to follow that path. So there's pressure, even if you believe there's a better approach, there's pressure just to toe the line because we're part of a community. And doing anything that's different from the community is perceived as a threat. So just a couple of ideas that come to mind, but what are your thoughts on that, Z? I mean, does that trigger any thoughts about how we navigate that balance? Yeah, I got you, Vin. I'm sitting here smiling because when you talked about, I've read that monkey experiment, and I've also seen it play out in human beings. Your culture is the electric shock, right, that, that tells you the way it is. And the minute you see something outside of that, it startles you in such a way that it oftentimes can be overwhelmingly disturbing, right? And I think about people I know. I have a, a, a Chinese student, Taiwanese student, and she uh, divorced her husband some years ago. And um, my dogs had had puppies, and I was giving away German Shepherd puppies. And out of the clear blue, she said, I'll take one of the puppies, or she ended up taking three of the puppies through a series of events. But she raised the puppy and she said, Z, this is the first decision I've ever made on my own and I didn't consult or my parents didn't make it for me. They told me what school to go to, who to marry, how to live my life, to have a boy and a girl. I did everything they told. I was empty inside. And she said, I realized that when she uh, was, her husband had, a, had a, an affair with his, um, was having an affair with his assistant at their medical clinic for a long time, and her mother told her, that's just the way it is, just knuckle down, you have money, you have credit cards, you can buy whatever you want. This is the way it is. And she said she happened to be doing Tai Chi with everybody, and she went out to lunch. And just the warmth of everybody caused a sensation in her body she had never felt. She felt alive, and she felt independent. But she also felt afraid. And then once that she applied for the divorce, her husband was happy to give her a divorce, um, completely acted like it was nothing, it literally was nothing for him. And she, she said she wasn't even hurt because it really was nothing. There was nothing human in their relationship. It was structural, it, and her parents berated her for that. Um, the in-laws didn't speak. Um, it caused tension with the children because the children growing up here thought the mom and dad were a good, happy together. She didn't know that there was never anything. And the daughter confessed to her that she had met a boy and she was boy crazy. Um, and it was really hard for the children to have that awakening. She said the first time she went on a date and a man pulled a chair for her and she said brushed her shoulder. She said her whole body broke out in hives. 
she had never felt anything that felt like kindness in her life. But she was materially okay, and the kids were materially okay, and she just went on this whole thing. So she took my three dogs. She said that, that was the one decision she had made by herself. She moved away, raised the dogs, got, went on dates for the first time. She was in her 40s, and she never looked back. She said she did have a great sense of duty to her parents. She said, and, and she consulted me, and she said, what to do? They, they feel disgraced by me. They seem to hate me, but they're dependent on me for their care. How do I do this? How do I care for them and continually listen to their demeaning me? I said, don't listen. Care for them as you would, as you said, that doing things for other people could be part of our animal nature. Right? So it isn't always a dog-eat-dog. Sometimes the dog protects another dog or whatever because it makes that dog feel okay. In nature, animals will do magnanimous things to maintain the integrity of their reality. Animals will adopt other animals and treat them as if they're their own because it provides them with a greater sense of self. So it isn't always a negative that we have this kind of animal nature. Animal nature would not prevail if it was a hostile negative thing. That has allowed us to evolve, but it is adaptation that is very much our higher frequency. So we adapt and we understand, and even a higher level is self-enlightenment, where we can reflect and look, be that dispassionate observer, and see what we are made of. So you may do things that on the surface don't seem beneficial, but within the soul of you, it actually feels right. It helps you, it inspires you to live. Um, I was telling you as I'm learning this book, I have always been one who saw success in a, in, within a communal way, not in an individual way. I also always assumed that people also were in need as I was. So I, my, it, would, it would actually diminish my need. It would have been, diminish my sense of deficiency when I, I would project onto others that maybe they're going through something too, right? And so that was my animal nature, and it ends up benefiting people. Maybe sometime it is, is it, it is to the detriment of myself. So let us not cast off our animal nature and appreciate it, because it's not always dog-eat-dog, vicious, crab-in-a-barrel type thing. We are conditioned by our culture. So I appeal to everybody to take a contemplative look, a meditative moment, to look at the culture that made you who you are and make those little cultural adjustments so you can flourish in this life. Delay gratification and appreciate it, but don't throw away intimacy, passion, love, connection, because that's the reason we're here. That is the jewel of life. When I see people, and I see people in the clinic here who don't have that, they have diseases associated with no passion because that is something that moves the energy of the body. It inspires cell mitosis and cell reproduction and regeneration by having a desire to be. When they say suppress your desires, they don't say kill your desires. Manage them, direct them. When they say celibacy, they don't mean no sex. They mean direct your sexual energy so that it isn't, you're not a slave to it, but you can benefit from it and flourish with it. You got me, Vin? Things to think about. 
Yeah, yeah, I got you. I think uh, just having that awareness is important, questioning the narratives and the patterns that we go through. Just one final thing to add before we wrap up uh, this idea of the alpha male. Uh, You talked about this with regard to the animal kingdom, and we've got this idea that the alpha is the strong dominant one, you know, the gorilla who beats down all the other gorillas, or the wolf who rips out the throats of the other wolves. And if you look at the research, it's actually not the case. So a lot of times the alpha is the one who can resolve conflict, who can build consensus, who can get the group to do what's in their collective best interests. And the evidence is in front of us that there are different ways of operating, but that's almost overrun or overruled by just whatever ideas we have about life, about how the world works, uh, because either that's what we hear, that's what we've done, and that's what we've seen. Uh, so yeah, Z, I think having that that awareness is critical. And once you have that awareness, you're free to be the architect. Uh, There's no limit. I mean, it's your life. You can set your own standards. You can tweak. You can build more floors or less floors. You can make your house more fancy or more stripped down. But the point is you can manage it in a way that works for you. That's it, Ben. Look forward to us uh, doing this again. And you you always inspire me when I talk to you. And for all of us opt-out folks, all my friends, family out there, Check us out on Dharma Media. Check out the Century Project. Uh, Send me uh, uh, some kind of post, text, Instagram, Facebook, DM me, whatever it is they're doing, and let me know what you like. Maybe we can, Caitlin, we can start having opportunity for people to comment within our community. That's kind of against that. Maybe you guys can talk about things you want to talk about. We're trying to grow this platform. Uh, I'm trying to figure out a way to retire by monetizing all this. So uh, let's get it on. And also hold your ground, people. There's a lot of crazy, mad narratives out there. Hold your ground. Hold your ground. Don't buy into it. We live in interesting times. Do not buy into madness. If it seems weird, it doesn't seem right, uh, it ain't right. Trust yourself. Talk to you soon. Peace. Talk to you later, Ben. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Each five-star review helps us bring you more unique and insightful content. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. Peace.